Good morning. Great to have all of you with us this morning, whether you're here in person or in the courtyard or you're online, glad that you're able to join us. And I'm thankful to the elders for giving me another chance to speak with you this morning, share with you some thoughts from Scripture. And and this reading that that Gary had for us uh, out of Mark chapter 8, this healing of the blind man, it there, there's, this one's always caught my attention. There, there's some odd stuff that's going on here. It's not surprising that he, he meets a blind man. Um, if you remember the passage, um, if we get that next slide, whoever, all right. Uh, if, it's not surprising that he meets the blind man. I mean, we, we're familiar with the fact that, that blind men will come to Jesus. In, in John chapter 9, there's the man who was born blind. And so that doesn't surprise us. Uh, we, we see Jesus in this verse on the next slide, uh, that he, uh, he takes the blind man by the hand and he leads him out of the village. That's, that's actually a very endearing moment because it, it reminds us that Jesus isn't doing this for a show. He's not trying to put this on, you know, go viral video with this of his healing. He has respect for this man and he takes him outside of the village and and, and speaks a specific word to him. So so that's very endearing. Now it is a little strange when we hear that Jesus spits on the man's eyes. Um, Spits on the man's eyes. I mean what what must this blind man have been thinking when he all of a sudden hears Jesus and spits right there. I, I mean we're, we're just wondering, what is that all about? In John chapter 9, he spits on the ground and he makes some mud. That's maybe a little, at least, maybe more sanitary? I don't know. It doesn't seem very, in a COVID world, it just it seems a little surprising to spit in the man's eye. Although, a little bit earlier in Mark, he, uh, he actually will hear, heal uh, a, a deaf and, and mute man. And, and we're told that he, he spits on the man's tongue. And so, I, I don't know. I don't know why Mark has to tell us about spitting, but it, it definitely catches our attention. But the real surprise, the real shock comes when the man can't see clearly. Uh, the man, initially, Jesus will say, um, you know, do you see anything? He says he looked up and he says, I, I see people, and they look like trees walking around. What is going on here? Because the man has been asking for healing, and Jesus will actually spit on his eyes, and, and yet he has blurry vision. He, he sees, but, but he doesn't quite see. I mean, we're used to instant healing, aren't we? We're used to the fact that Jesus can um, give a touch. He can speak a word. There, there's other places in which Jesus isn't even physically present with the person who is in need of healing. And he's able to do that without a problem. And and so what is it about this passage that takes Jesus two attempts? If you remember, Gary said that the subtitle on that text was the two-stage healing. Why does it take two tries? It brings to mind at first uh, maybe something kind of like in Detective um, Pikachu. Do you, if you saw that movie, I don't even have kids at home anymore, and I saw this movie. I, I, I mean, it's just, I, I couldn't miss it. But there's, there's one part where Pikachu is, he's in this fight for his life, and he's trying to call to mind his powers. Uh, I think Pikachu can do like a lightning, he's like got light, static electricity stuff, and he can give this lightning jolt. Uh, maybe you've seen that, this thunderbolt that comes out of the heavens. And, and so he's in the ring, and he's squeezing, 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 and and nothing's happening, and he gets kind of embarrassed, like, stop looking at me, I'm trying, and I mean, is that kind of what's going on here with Jesus, that, that, that he is, he's been asked to heal, he spits on the eyes, but just not quite 
feeling it. Now, now we might, might give Jesus a pass. Um, Jesus, we, we know, is not only fully divine, but he's also fully human. And, and so we, we might understand that, you know, Jesus, maybe it's just he's not feeling it that day. Uh, maybe, maybe that's part of what's going on. Um, it is noteworthy that in all of the Gospels, can, can you think of another time where it takes two tries to heal somebody? I, I mean, can you think of all the times that Jesus heals that it takes more than just that initial word of healing? Now, Mark will tell us a little bit earlier um, in Mark 6 that, um, that he, he goes home to his hometown and He's actually limited in the miracles that he'll do. It's not, I don't have a verse on screen, but, um, but, but it actually is, uh, he's limited in, in what he's able to do. But that has to do with the people's lack of faith, not with Jesus' ability and power. And, and so this is different. So why is it that this is a two-stage healing? Is it that Jesus is tired or is it possible? Is it possible that something else is going on here? Is it possible that Mark is up to something? That Mark is actually using this for that very reason, to catch our attention, to draw us into the story, to make us ask the question, what is that all about? Mark, it's probably good for us to know, loves to make sandwiches. I've got a picture of a sandwich here. I don't, I don't know if we have slides or not, but uh, if, if we do... Maybe we don't have a picture sandwich. Just imagine a sandwich. Um, you know, there was preaching long before PowerPoint, so we can keep proclaiming the word, whether we see the slides or not. Uh, Mark loves to make sandwiches, and, um, and, and he loves to stack these stories. And, and he'll, he'll start with a piece of bread, and then he'll just start laying on all of these layers. And, and it's to draw us in. It's to, it's to highlight certain things that he's wanting to, to teach. Um, earlier in chapters 4 and 5, you'll notice this series of encounters. Uh, Jesus is uh, he's on, the, on, the, on the boat, and they face the storm. And, and then they go right to the healing of the demon-possessed man and then right to the healing of the woman who has um, had this terrible illness for over 12 years. And, and then we go right to the, the healing of a daughter, of Jairus' daughter. There's this story after story after story, and in all four of those stories, there's this interplay with faith and fear. Why are you afraid? Why don't you have faith? Don't be afraid. Just believe. And so Mark likes to use those sandwich stories of stacking it all in to really draw out the attention. Later on in chapter 11, you, you may remember that he, he goes to the temple, and then the next morning he wakes up, and he sees a fig tree that's not producing fruit. He curses that fig tree, and then he goes to the temple, and he cleanses the temple. And then the very next story we find out is the disciples are walking past that tree, and they see that there's issues going on. It's this sandwich that's happened. Fig tree, cleansing of the temple, fig tree. It wasn't about the fig tree. That was to draw our attention to what is going on in the temple. So Mark loves to use sandwiches. And as we look at the larger context here in our passage, I think we're going to see something similar. In fact, there's really a sandwich that starts here and kind of goes all through chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. And we get started with a taste of what's going on almost immediately in the, in the very next conversation that follows. Oh, we do. Okay, we've got slides again. So uh, we're in Mark 8. If you want to open up your Bibles, that's, we're just going to kind of go through a series, but we, we do have them on the screen. Again, 
Our story right here, Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes. His eyes were open. His sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. And so let's be reminded that Jesus does bring full sight to this man. Uh, At the end of this encounter, the man can see clearly. There is no more blurry vision. And then he sends him home. And then immediately, the very next verse, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. We have moved from him asking this man, what do you see? To now he asks the disciples, the apostles, what do they say? What are people saying about me? Who do they say that I am? And they have this, maybe John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. But he points at them specifically and says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And it's, it's Peter who answers, who confesses, who professes that you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the, the King, the Anointed One, the Awaited One. You are the fulfillment of all of our hopes. And we might say that they see, that they see who Jesus is. They've nailed it. He is the Messiah. And yet the very next conversation is going to bring that into question because immediately moving in the text, verse 31, he, Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to do what? To rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus will talk about the um, impending suffering that he must face in Jerusalem. Mark has 16 chapters. Here we are in chapter 8. We've made it halfway through the Gospel story. And we have yet to hear what it is, this, this path on which he is heading, that it will end in suffering. It will end in his death. First time we hear it. And did you hear, did you notice how the disciples respond to that? In fact, did you notice who responds to Jesus when he starts talking about what is going to come? Peter, who just said, you are the Messiah, I see you, Jesus. And yet when Peter hears what Jesus is going to go through, what Jesus says is going to happen to him, what does Peter say? There ain't no way. Jesus, that is not what's going to happen to you. And, Jesus, and Peter doesn't just disagree with him. He doesn't just kind of like nudge somebody and say, I don't see that happening. No, he actually rebukes Jesus. But he said, you're the Messiah. And yet he will rebuke Jesus. What is going on here? Uh, Unless maybe it could be that he can't quite see. That, That Peter, although he claims, I see you as the Messiah, that Peter has blurry vision. 
But the disciples have blurry vision and aha. Now, Mark, we see what it is that you're up to. We see how you were drawing us in to help us better see. I assume you've at some point been to the eye doctor. I think the technical term is the optometrist. Is that right? All right. If, if not, I guess I've got the mic, and we'll just go with optometrist today. But uh, um, I think it's optometrist. I always get the eye doctors confused. My apologies to any eye doctors that are out there. But I'm sure you've been to uh, a, an eye doctor at some point, and you get this device. And, and have you ever been you know, convinced that you were seeing the world just fine? And then what do they do? They flip a lens in front of you. You're like, whoa, I had, I had no idea. That, that actually is a lot more clear and crisp than I realized. No, that's great. Thanks, Doc. No, no, I'm not done. And they flip another lens. And like, whoa, that is even more clear. I, this is amazing. How, did, how have I been missing this the whole time? I thought my vision was just fine. And they keep locking and, and clicking, and you keep seeing through a different lens, and suddenly you realize, wow, I've had a lot blurrier vision than I knew. There's lots of misperceptions about the Messiah. Um, in Jesus' day, they were anticipating, they were awaiting. This was the fulfillment of the hopes. They, they couldn't wait until God's promises would be fulfilled through the Messiah. And there was this expectation of, of who he would be as, as, as really kind of three categories, prophet, priest, and king, that, that he would be the culmination of all of the Israelites' hopes if he is going to be the king. The misperception was, the thought was, the assumption was, <laughs> that king is going to finally rid us of all of this Roman rule and push the Romans out of Israel. He will be the king. Uh, if he's going to be a priest, he will be perfect. And although we would say that he is perfect, that he is, brings the perfect law, their idea of what that perfection is like is a little bit different than what we understand Jesus reveals. They don't mean perfection in terms of the perfect law, they mean the perfect representation, the pristine example of what it means to be a priest. For instance, think about all the reactions to Jesus. You can't heal on the Sabbath. That's, that's not what a good priest would do. You wouldn't be hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. That's not what a perfect, pristine priest would do. And so there's these misperceptions. The king who will kick out Rome, the, the priest who will uphold the perfect picture of everything that we have come to think that the law is telling us. As a prophet, this is going to be his word to all of them out there. Not a word to us. These misperceptions, in turn, created assumptions among his followers. If he's going to be the king... Well, let's, let's get in line because that authority and power and place is just going to trickle down to all of us and we will have power and we will have wealth. If he's going to be the priest and the prophet, this is going to be vindication. We will finally arrive at our rightful place and recognition in the culture of our day. They are not completely blind. They, they have an understanding of Scripture, of, of, of this Messiah who would come, but they can't quite see clearly. 
Their vision is, is fuzzy. It's blurry vision. And so Jesus and, and Mark, in turn, set out to correct the perceptions, like good optometrists. And let me give you a lens through which to look and to better see. In fact, immediately, Jesus will alert his followers to the impact of his role and purpose and what that's going to mean for their life. No no matter what you've thought or assumed about what it means to follow me, he says, he called the crowd along to him with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. Let me help you better see what it means to follow me. But, but they don't get it. They're not getting it. In fact, Jesus will come around a second time in chapter 9, and as they leave a place and passing through Galilee, Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching the disciples. He's got important stuff to be teaching them. And he says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Jesus is trying to help them see, and he gives them a better teaching. But, and I don't, I don't have a slide here this morning, but um, if you look at the very next story, you know what happens right after he's told them what is going to happen to him? Right after, they're, they're on their way to Capernaum. When they were in the house, he asked them, hey, what were you arguing about on the road? Do you remember what it was that the disciples loved to argue about when they would be walking? Who's going to be the greatest? Who's, who's the best among us? Jesus has just told them, I will suffer and die. Whoever wants to be my follower must take up their cross and follow me daily. And yet, what is the conversation on their mind? Who's the greatest? I think it's me. That's definitely not you. I'm so much better than you are. They they can see, but not clearly. Jesus has to continue teaching. For the third time in chapter 10, uh, we hear that they were on their way up to Jerusalem. With Jesus leading the way, the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told what was going to happen. We are going up to Jerusalem. Let me be clear. Look through this lens, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. I'm trying to help you see, to understand to have a clear vision of what it is that is going to happen, of why it is that I have come. They're almost there. They're almost to Jerusalem. And yet, in the very next verse, who do we have but James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come to him and ask, Teacher, we want you to do whatever it is that we ask for you. Well, what do you want me to do for you? They They asked, and he said, or he asked them, and they replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. For the third time, he's told them, the Son of Man is going to suffer and die, and three days later, he will rise again. They argue on the road who's the greatest here in this final moment, the final teaching. What's their thought? I'm just wondering, you know, when you do sit on that throne in all of your glory, can I have that right seat, and can can my brother have that left seat? We'll fight between the two of us of who gets which. 
But we just want to be able to sit there. The disciples themselves hear about this a few verses down. When the ten heard about this, they become indignant with James and John. Well, who do you think you are asking to sit in those places of power and position? That should be for us. They can't quite see. They just don't get it. They've still got this blurry vision. Now it's tempting. It's tempting for us to shake our heads, roll our eyes, and say, how could they be so blind? But if not careful, can't we? Can't we succumb to similar misperceptions about Jesus, about who he is, about what he wants for us? Our our cultures may be different. Uh, We certainly don't live under Roman rule. And maybe our thought isn't about the king who is going to you know, remove the, uh, the Romans from, from authority. And yet, can't our own culture, can't it create its own set of issues with which we have to wrestle and, and with which we have to clear our vision to better see? I mean, we, we live not under Roman rule, but we live in the land of the American dream. Declaration of Independence proclaims rights to which we are entitled, unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Of happiness. We understand that as Americans, and if not careful, we can allow that to blur the line when it comes to faith. We can begin to assume that surely God wants me to be blessed Surely God wants me to be comfortable. Surely God wants me to have a life of ease and peace and happiness. How do we, in a land of wealth and and affluence, how do we balance out the call of Jesus that whoever wants to follow me must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me? We hear the words and and we see the words, but we have to ask ourselves, do we truly see? In a time of division, in a time of discrimination, in a time of political tensions, how easy it is to blur our own vision and, and to assume that Jesus stands with me. My position, my people, my party, that we begin to assume that Jesus, he sees the world through our eyes, and he stands with me. Do you remember what Peter did? Peter hears what it is that Jesus is about, and yet Peter rebukes Jesus and tells Jesus, he tells the Messiah, you got it all wrong, Jesus. No, you need to be more in line with this direction. Discipleship is never about us conforming him to our position, but us being conformed to him and his position, seeing him clearly. In fact, Anne Lamott, she rightly warns us that you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. How easy it is to be blinded by our own biases. 
In fact, isn't that the nature of a bias? That it's so fundamental to us that we don't even see how it's affecting us. And so even as we see Jesus and see who he is, and, and, and we want to be a part of that, you are the Messiah, that, that we become blurred in our vision. Peter, the apostles, and his people today, we offer up that prayer, God, help us to better see. And, and that's exactly what Jesus is offering. That's exactly what Jesus is doing, is he is inviting us to see a better way. That, that even as he knows that we may hear these words of denial and self-sacrifice, that we may hear that his is a path of suffering and giving of one's life, that it may sound crazy, but if we will just trust him, we will come to see that it is indeed the better way. And as if to drive this point home, as if to clear up all of our questions about that earlier two-stage healing that happened, uh, Mark returns to this sandwich. And in verse 48, uh, right after James and John have asked about being you know, in those two positions of power, um, we, we come across a man, Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus is a blind man who is, they're on their way to Jericho. Bartimaeus hears that Jesus is coming and he cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, what kind of reference is that? That's a reference to his kingship, the anointed one. He's in the line of David. So again, Mark is playing with all of these ideas. Son of David, have mercy on me. They try to quiet him down, uh, but he shouts all the more and Jesus stops and calls him over. So they call over the blind man, cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? And Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Five words. Sums it all up. I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight. No touch. No contact. Just the word. And he's healed. This story hasn't been about Jesus' inability to heal on the first touch. This has been a journey in helping us understand, do we clearly see? Can you imagine that moment? Can you imagine a, a, a person who is blind and hasn't had the ability to see clearly suddenly instantly, immediately regains the sight. What must that moment have been like? I, I was reminded as I was walking through the text of one of those videos, I think it went viral, it was a news story of, of a little kid, a four-month-old, um, who was given glasses for the first time, and I think we've got that here, if it'll play for us. Finally tonight, a magical moment for one baby boy whose life suddenly changed when a pair of eyeglasses was placed on his little face. Before that, everything was fuzzy, but now those bright eyes are taking in a whole new world. ABC's John Donvan with the story tonight. Okay, we're just going to show it to you, so watch this. Watch the expression on this baby's face. His name is Leo, he's four months, and this smile... And here's why it means so much to his mom and dad. Before that moment, Leo who has a rare disorder affecting his vision, had never had a good, clear look at the world. Most of what he's been able to see 
up until the, getting the glasses was extremely fuzzy or completely out of focus. Yup, everything, even up-close things like his dad's beard. He'd look at him or, or get close to his face and instantly put his hands towards his cheeks, maybe to identify if it's dad or if it's mom. So the glasses were there to fix that. And the video, it shows the moment he first puts them on and first looks straight into his mother's face. And there's that hesitation, and then there it is. Obviously, Leo likes what he sees. That smile was something that was so different. Yeah, it was just a, it was just remarkable. Smile. Yes, it was remarkable. So here's one last look at this first look. John Donvan, ABC News, Washington. I mean, that's a drop the mic kind of moment, isn't it? I mean, what else needs to be said? We've seen, I mean, it just brings tears to your eyes, that moment in which you can finally see in Jesus. He offers the same to you and me. Jesus, he's, he's extending the opportunity to you and to me to better see, to, to, to trust him and allow him to hone in and sharpen and focus our own vision. You know, far from being afraid of what we'll find, can you imagine if those glasses were put on Leo's face that he's like, I don't want to see, I don't know what I'll see. No, far from being afraid, when we can finally see clearly, what is the only response? It's the smile that comes from deep within, like, oh my goodness, I've been missing out on all of this. To finally see him as he is. In fact, it's, it's, it's interesting if, if we go back to, and I don't have the slide up here, but um, if you go back to that healing um, where Jesus will, will heal this Bartimaeus, he tells him, he, he says, go, go your own way. Your faith has healed you. But, but listen to how Mark says he responds. Immediately, he received his sight, and he followed Jesus along the road. He's been given his sight, and Jesus doesn't even, doesn't even attach any strings to it. He just says, let me help you see. And the minute Bartimaeus can fully see, what does he choose? He doesn't choose his own way. I don't want to go my own way. I want to go your way. Wherever it is you're going, I will follow. This is the language of discipleship. Jesus is on his way into Jerusalem, into all of this suffering that he's already discussed. And yet when Bartimaeus can fully see Jesus as he is, sign me up. I want to be about the things that you're about I can see clearly. You know, it leads us to the realization that we have to ask the question. We have to ask the question not if I have blurry vision, no, but actually the question of in what ways is my own vision blurry? It would be wonderful if we could say, I, I have no issues, I can see clearly. Chances are that um, overconfidence is probably indicative of the fact that we haven't quite seen. How is my vision blurry? How do I not fully see who it is Jesus um, is? What it is that he is about? What it is that he wants me to be about? How he wants to live my life in this culture, in this time, in this place? How is my vision blurry? And the blind man, Bartimaeus, he shares with us the simple prayer, the only prayer that's needed. What does he pray? What does he ask? Rabbi, I want to see. 
And if we're willing to offer that prayer, to ask that prayer, and Jesus says, I thought you would never ask. Let me sharpen your vision, hone that focus, and allow you to see. May our eyes be opened to better see. May our eyes be cleared and sharp and singular in seeing Jesus as he is and hearing his call, his invitation to follow him. You may wish to respond this morning. Um, maybe it's something you wish to do publicly, and I invite you to come forward as we stand and sing. Maybe it's something you wish to do privately and just simply ask God that prayer. God, I want to see you more clearly. I'm telling you, he's ready and waiting, and he can bring that vision instantly. Won't you come while we stand and sing?
Say amen. amen. I thank Aaron for that wonderful lesson. Um, I, was, I was really moved by that. Um, it's, it's interesting that you, know, you think about the disciples were with Jesus for years, and they didn't see, even after being, with, being in his presence for all that time. So uh, if, if they could have blurry vision, it's definitely a good chance some of us have blurry, blurry well, all of us actually have blurry vision and uh, should be open to, uh, uh, to what the word has to say to us. So thank you for that lesson. also want to thank Brandon for leading us the song today with the, the usual enthusiasm and effort that you put forward. We we're just blessed to have been, uh, to have you in our presence and be among us for all these years and wish you all the best. There is a, uh, a lunch prepared for all of us to spend a bit of time with Brandon and his family to, uh, to wish him well. And uh, we, we want to encourage you all to stay and, and participate in that and say a few words to Brandon and his family. So thank you again. Let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer at this time. Dear God, we're so grateful for this opportunity to, to hear another portion of your word. Thank you for your servant, uh, Aaron, and, and, and the message that he, he gave us this morning. Thank you for your servant, Brandon as he led us in song this morning. Thank you for all those who serve uh, this day and, and, and every day. Uh, take the time out of our lives to serve you and those around us. It's in Jesus' name I pray and ask it all. Amen.